Good evening. Over the last five years, my husband and I have built two custom homes. And everything about a custom build is you take your design that you have in your head and your wishes and you create it from the ground up, step by step. Or should I say, you, you really take it from the mind up, step by step with very specific instructions. Everything from the windows to the doors, to the architecture, to the design of the home, to the flooring and all the materials to be used in the home, even to the outlet placement, is carefully thought of, trialed, and then executed. We sat through hours and hours, multiple meetings with our builder prior before construction ever started. Why? Because instruction comes before construction. And this week, we're going to see God give very specific detail to the Israelites for the tabernacle. God is very repetitive throughout our reading of Exodus 25 through 31. You must make it exactly as I have shown you. The Israelites will be required to have specific order and specific materials because God's blueprint must be followed. The command for the Israelites to do exactly as God commands is going to signify something important, and that's the level of their obedience. And their obedience is going to teach two things. It's going to reveal their fear of the Lord if they in fact obey, and then it's going to teach a sinful people how to live amongst a holy God. You see, God is holy. God had dwelt with Adam and Eve physically in the Garden of Eden. But then after the fall, when man is expelled from the garden, there has to be separation between holiness and sin. So we're going to see tonight God coming to us. God comes to the Israelites to be in the midst of them, in their presence again. But... There must be separation from sin of a holy God and sinful man. Man cannot approach God as he desires, but as God requires. And God is going to require preparation, consecration, purification, atonement, and sacrifice to be in his presence. One of my favorite things to do with my sisters is go to Starbucks get a Target, and then go walk through model homes. And we do this so much that my brother-in-law just loves to make fun of us. And he, he tells us every time we walk out the door, I know what you girls are going to do. You're going to get your Starbucks, go to Target, and end up in a model home. But we own it because we love it. It's so fun for us to walk through a beautiful home room by room and step by step and just admire the design and the beauty. And for those of you in here who have ever built a home yourselves, once the slab was poured and the framing went up, how often did you walk through your own floor plan? My guess would be often because walking through your floor plan brings to life your vision, does it not? And it makes you excited to see what the vision is. And so tonight, I want you to journey with me through the tabernacle 
and we're going to take a tour together of God's holy dwelling place. We're going to visualize room by room what the tabernacle is like, and we're going to carefully inspect the specific instructions for God's dwelling place. So let's pretend together that we've gotten our Starbucks, our trip to Target is done, and we're exiting out of the car. So there's only one requirement from this point moving forward. We have to enter with reverence because the place that we're going is holy ground. You can open your book if you choose to page 102 where you'll see the illustration of the tabernacle or you can see it on the screen. And this is the place where Israel's king is enthroned. So right in front of us, we see this large rectangular structure, and this sits right in the center of the camp of Israel. And it was about 150 feet long, which is a little less than half of an American football field. So as we approach closer, what do we see? We see a long white tent creating a boundary around the tabernacle. And we walk up to the entrance gate. And this entrance gate is beautiful. It has vibrant colors of blue and red and purple, which were commonly known at that time as colors of divinity. Can anyone on our tour tell me what direction the tabernacle gate faces? It faces east. So this here is no ordinary gate. This gate is intended to visually remind us of the former time that God dwelt physically with man. Genesis 2.8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man who he had formed. So both the tabernacle and the garden of Eden have an eastern entrance. So the imagery coming to life here as we enter through the tabernacle is a reminder of when God dwelt with his people. So as we cross through the entrance, know this, God dwells with his people here. So now that we've crossed through the gate, we're standing in the courtyard. And we see right in front of us this square, hollow wooden box. And this wooden box is overlaid with bronze with four horns at the corners, one on each side. And this is called the altar of burnt offering. So as we've gotten closer to God's presence, the bronze altar signifies to us that sin must be atoned for. And this is where the life of an innocent animal would be sacrificed for the sins of Israel. So if we walk around the bronze box, we're going to come to a bronze, altar, a bronze basin. And here at this bronze basin is where Aaron and his sons would wash and purify themselves. They would wash their hands and wash their feet. Exodus 30, 19 through 20. Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and feet from the basin. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister by burning a food offering to the Lord, they must wash with water so that they will not die. So as we've taken a few more steps towards God's presence, the priest must consecrate themselves. 
Why? Because approaching God carelessly can lead to death. We learned just a few weeks ago, prior to God's presence descending on Mount Sinai and him giving Moses the Ten Commandments, God has very strict warnings of how they are to prepare and consecrate themselves. So this is nothing new. They have heard this before. The closer you get to God's presence, you must consecrate yourselves because entering into the presence of God frivolously or disrespectfully can lead to death. Therefore, when the priests are standing at the bronze basin and they're washing themselves, not only is this an act of obedience for them, it's also an act of confession. They are confessing by doing this sacrament, which is a visible act to an invisible truth. They're confessing that they are, in fact, sinful in need of purification. So before we follow Aaron and his sons into the tent of meeting, let's pause and we're going to examine the priestly garments, the role of their priest and their garments. God has very specific instructions for the Israelites, not only for the tabernacle, but even down to the priest and their garments. So even down to their clothing, they are to obey because even their clothing will reflect the glory of God to others. If you look at page 103 in your book, you can see an illustration or you should be able to see one behind me. So what were the colors on the priest? Blue, purple, red with finely spun linen, which was very costly material. So these are the same colors of divinity that now the priests wear that are also at the gate entrance. So they're wearing the colors of royalty to reflect the glory of God. In your homework, you also labeled on the priestly garments that the priest wore two stones on their shoulders and they wore 12 stones on the breastplate. And these signified the names of the tribes of Israel. We're also told in the scripture that the priests are required to wear undergarments. Now, why would God specify this? Why is this included for us to know that about them? Because God is making it clear that there must be a covering for sin. Just as when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when they re-entered the presence of God, what did they do? They covered themselves. So God makes it a point to tell the priest that you must give a covering for sin. The priests are required to consecrate themselves so that they might serve the Lord and represent Israel. And it's after obeying the Lord's instructions for consecration, which included preparation, a sin offering, two burnt offerings, and even lastly, instructions for ordaining Aaron's sons into the priesthood. Then God would consecrate the priest, consecrate the tabernacle, and he would make his dwelling place with his people. You see, freedom comes in the following. God is going to draw the Israelites into his presence, but it will be done not as man desires, but as God requires. And that will be done through obedience. So now that we've examined the role of the priest in their garments, we see in front of us a huge 
beautiful veil. And it's going to be through this veil that we'll enter the holy place. But this veil separates the courtyard from the tent of meeting. And this veil, it's important to notice, that was a boundary line. It was a stopping place for, the, for most of the ancient Israelites. For most of the ancient Israelites, this was the closest that they were allowed to come to the presence of God. Because it, it is from this point forward that there will be strict separation between sin and holiness. And it's from this point forward that only the priest may pass through and enter. So as the priest pull back the veil, let's follow them in. As we stand in the room to the most holy place, there's only three items in this room. We have a table, we have a lampstand, and we have an altar of incense. And so coming over to the table, this table is made of wood, but now instead of bronze, it's overlaid with gold. And there's two stacks of loaves on this table, six each, 12 total. And this is called the bread of the presence. And this bread is literally translated the bread in front of the presence of God. And the bread of the presence in this table faces the lampstand. And this lampstand provides eternal light filling up the room of the holy place. And this lampstand is beautiful. This lampstand is made of solid gold. It's intricate, it's specific, and it's for a reason. So I'm going to read, and as I read, I want you to listen and listen, look to see the imagery. This lamp has a base and a shaft. This lamp has buds and petals. It has six branches extending out each branch with its own buds. And the cups to the lamps are to be shaped like almond blossoms. Every single week in your homework, we make it a point to say that when God is specific, we have to pay attention. So God has chosen to be specific about what this lamp is to look like, and that's for a reason. So why does God specify that almond blossoms are supposed to be on this lamp? Well, Almond blossoms, at the time, uh, was known as a symbol. You see, the almond tree is unique because it's the first to flower, and it flowers in the winter. So I want you to pause and think about that for a moment. It flowers in the winter when all other vegetation around it is dead. But the almond tree produces new life in the midst of death. So the almond tree is known as a symbol for resurrection. So this lampstand in the holy place is a symbol for the tree of life. More Eden imagery. It's beautiful. So if we walk straight ahead, then we come to the final thing in the holy place, which is the altar of incense. This altar is also overlaid with gold, and it sat right in front of the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place. And Aaron and his sons are to burn the incense daily, 
Just like how they're to tend to the lampstand daily to keep the lampstand lit where it's producing eternal light, they're going to do the same thing with the incense, to tend to it daily. And the Lord is very specific that this incense is a specific recipe with specific ingredients, and it is only to be used here. It may not be replicated. This incense is the smell of the Lord filling the temple, representing the prayers, rising to God as a sweet perfume. Behind the altar of incense is the veil to the most holy place. Now this veil is almost identical to the veil separating the courtyard from the holy place. And the veils have silver posts that go up and down. The difference in this veil is a slight addition. And the difference is that cherubim have been added in the imagery. Now cherubim throughout scripture are angelic beings that guard holy places. What guarded the eastern entrance to the Garden of Eden after man was expelled? Cherubim. So cherubim are guarding the holy dwelling place of God. So over and over again, we see Eden imagery communicating God dwells with his people. Access from this point forward will be permitted, but it is guarded and it will be through God's standards. So with reverence, we're going to cross through the cherubim and enter the holy of holies. It is here in the Holy of Holies that is the most sacred room. And there's one item in this room, the Ark of the Covenant. And what is stored inside the Ark? Well, we're told in Exodus that it's the two tablets of the testimony, which are the Ten Commandments. But we're told later on in Scripture that there were two more items stored in the Ark as well, manna from heaven and Aaron's rod that budded. And you can read about that story in Numbers. So three items total inside the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is completely covered in gold. So have you noticed what has happened with the metals, the closer that we've gotten to God's presence? When we started on the outside, we had bronze. As we step closer to the tent of the tabernacle, then we have silver on the veils. And now that we are in the throne room of God, pure gold everywhere. So the closer that we've gotten to God's presence, the more precious the metals have become, signifying how valuable the Lord is. And the same is true if you look up at the ceiling of the tabernacle, the same is true for the linens. The outer layer is made of the portable tent material, but the closer you get to the inside of the holy place, the more precious the linens have become and the more costly they are. If we look at the design on the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to notice two rods coming out on each side. God's throne is so holy that man may not even touch it because they are sinful, but they may not touch a holy God. And so what they have to do is they have to touch the rods anytime the tabernacle moves. And we know this in scripture that the tabernacle is portable. It moves along with the people of Israel as they make their way to the promised land. So when it does require to be moved, they'll have to move it through touching the poles. 
At the top of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. In here, we have two cherubim that are fashioned out of one piece of gold with large wings that spread out and overlook the mercy seat. And the mercy seat literally is translated as the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. So the cherubim sit one on each end with their wings overlooking on the mercy seat. And what are they looking at? Nothing. It's empty. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we studied the Ten Commandments, how God specifically commanded that we not make an idol out of him, that we don't fashion an image of him with human hands? Why? Because anything that we could fashion to represent God is a reduction of his character. And so here, the mercy seat is empty because God is serious. I will not have a human-made image reflecting me. Jesus tells us in the New Testament, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So it is here at the mercy seat where God's presence sits enthroned. And it's here at the mercy seat that he will speak and meet with his people. And access is given according to God's very specific standards. Once a year, only the high priest may enter into the most holy place and atone for the sins of Israel. And he would do that with a sin offering. The high priest would take the sin offering and he would sprinkle blood on himself and then he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, atoning for the sins of Israel. You see, sin must be atoned for to be in God's presence. And in Hebrews 9:22, it says, According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, there's the shedding of blood to atone for the sins of Israel. And in the Jewish religion, they still celebrate this today. I think it's... I don't know how to pronounce this, Yom Kippur. I, I might be pronouncing that, probably am pronouncing that wrong. Um, you can ask Christy after the message. <laughs> but they do still celebrate this today, and it's their most holy holiday. So the atoning sacrifice and the penalty for sin for Israel is what purchases their reconciliation with God. So God's throne of grace is stained by sacrificial blood. What imagery does that bring to your mind? So we've journeyed together through the floor plan of God's dwelling place. Israel must obey God's instructions exactly, following the Lord's blueprints exactly as he commands. And we're going to see this carried out in week eight, in week eight. Why is Israel's obedience important, both literally and spiritually? Well, the tabernacle is filled with imagery and shadows that point to a greater truth. Hebrews 8.5 says these things serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Now, while the Israelites would have been familiar with some symbology, like all of the Eden imagery, they would not have been familiar with future symbology. 
But the commandment to do exactly as the Lord has said does not depend on if they understand why. The command is just to simply obey. But what does the tabernacle symbolize? Symbolism points to something. And the tabernacle points to the person of Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment for man's relationship with God, man's salvation with God. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, all of Scripture testifies about him. John 5, 3, Jesus says, you pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. For those of you that were with us in the Genesis study, you know how much I love finding the imagery of Christ in the Old Testament, particularly in the, in the story of Joseph. But it is everywhere. You can't read a single book without seeing Christ in the, sto- the one story of Scripture, in every book of the Bible. And Jesus specifically says the writings of Moses are about me. So where does the writings of Moses in the tabernacle testify to Christ? Well, let's back up our tour. And this time, as we walk room to room, we're going to look for Christ. So at the entrance gate of the tabernacle, Jesus is the gate through whom we enter to God. At the bronze altar, Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. At the bronze basin, Jesus is the purification for sin. At the table, Jesus is the bread of life who will leave no one hungry who eats of him. At the lampstand, Jesus is the light of the world, eternally illuminating truth in the darkness. At the veil, Jesus is the access to the Father. At the most holy place, Jesus is our high priest interceding between God and man. At the Ark of the Covenant, Jesus is the mercy seat. And at the throne on the mercy seat, Jesus is the sacrificial blood that purchases our forgiveness with God. See, it is impossible to tour through the tabernacle and not see Jesus. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And the original word that John uses for dwelt is tabernacle. So that verse literally reads, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So Jesus tabernacled with us on earth, and it's in his very name, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus tabernacled on earth. Why did he come to tabernacle with us? To restore the relationship between a holy God and sinful men. This week in particular, outside of Bible study, we're paying special attention and we're celebrating Holy Week, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. 
And it is at the death of Christ that the veil between the holy place and the most holy place tears in two. Matthew 27, 51. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks split. Now, the text specifically identifies where the veil tore. It tore from top to bottom. So this was not a tearing done by men. It was initiated by God to have full access to him through the death of Christ. So Jesus' death removes forever separation from God. Jesus sacrifices himself forever. And and Jesus' sacrifice forever fulfills all of the Old Testament sacrificial laws and requirements. So Jesus is both our eternal sacrifice and our great high priest, interceding on behalf of his people. His blood forever atones for our sin before a holy God, and his resurrection forever ushers us into the presence of God. So what is the shadow that points to the greater truth? That Jesus Christ is the superior covenant. You see, the law was limited. The law could provide atonement for sin, but it could not provide renewal for the whole self, for mind, body, and spirit. The law could conform our actions, but the law could not transform a heart. But the law does point us to the one who can, who can fully restore, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the superior covenant. So as Christ tabernacles on earth, the Holy Spirit tabernacles in us. Not only do we have access to God through Jesus Christ, but God's Spirit dwells in us. So we have become the tabernacle. We become the tabernacle moving and reflecting the glory of God wherever we go. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You see, every single person in this room is custom. You are designed with a very specific blueprint by the Lord for a specific purpose, to represent him and to bring him glory in all of the giftings that he's given you. We are the tabernacle because God's spirit dwells in us and he sends us out to reflect his glory. And yet, that's not where our story ends. John says in Revelation 21.3, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. So this is the same John from John 1.14 that we read earlier. What word do you think he used for dwells? Tabernacle. Look, God's tabernacle is with humanity. He's amazed by this. His tabernacle is with humanity. God will live with them, and they will be, God will live with them he will be their God. So the message communicated to us throughout all of Scripture, from the Garden of Eden 
to the tabernacle in the wilderness, to Jesus Christ himself coming to tabernacle on earth, to being given the gift of the Holy Spirit upon belief, where God's Spirit tabernacles in you, to God coming again to the new heaven and the new earth. The message is one. It's the same. God comes to us. God will dwell with his people. We will be his people, and he will be our God. So John, as he's recording this, and as he sees the vision of the final restoration, cries out in his spirit, yes, come quickly, come, Lord Jesus, come. God coming to dwell with man again, so be it. God will come again. Christ will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. The Holy Spirit will eternally testify to the works of Christ, and God's dwelling will physically be amongst men forever. So may we echo the words of John and say, yes, come, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly. How we long to dwell in your presence again. Let's pray. Father, it's only a good and loving God who would choose to come to us and enter the lives of a sinful and broken people and dwell amongst us. We confess that we fall drastically short of the requirements to be in your holy presence. And Lord, we need to repent and purify ourselves through Christ. Lord, thank you for Christ that you have purchased our forgiveness through the death and blood of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you lead us to love your word more than we do so that we may know it, we can proclaim it, and we can obey it and have more life. Teach us the freedom of obedience and the enjoyment through your presence. And Lord, use each of us how you've created us and designed us for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all can stand as we uh, continue in worship.